Welcome to Prajna Sparks Contemplation Interlude, where Yeshe and Zopa answer listener questions and discuss the previous full episode. Please take a moment to like, follow, and review us. Aside from your own practice, this is the best possible offering as it helps us reach new listeners. We will have a little discussion primarily about dukkha. I did want to start out by pulling from the sutra on turning the wheel of dharma. Exactly what the Buddha says dukkha is, because this word, Sanskrit word dukkha, of course, is famously translated as suffering. And in many ways, that's exactly right. But it's a little narrow. It's not as broad as what um, the Buddha intends by that. And also there's this sense of, oh, that Buddha, what a pessimist, what a downer he is. (laughs) There's so many lovely things in life. Why does he say everything is suffering? I'd like to just read in from the Sutra on Turning the Wheel of Dharma, exactly what the Buddha says is dukkha. He says, rebirth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Parting from what we hold dear is dukkha. Encountering what we dislike is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. In brief, the self-perpetuating skandhas are dukkha. Now, Except for when you get to this phrase, self-perpetuating skandhas, which might (laughs) raise a question mark. The rest of that list is pretty easy to agree with, I think. But I'd love to hear your reaction and also any questions about the various layers of meaning in the term dukkha itself. Yeah, and I think a lot of the list is united by concepts and ideas about things being other than they are. I don't know. I think about I'm visiting my grandparents right now. So the line that really stood out to me was aging is dukkha. And, you know, of course, people would like to, in older age, have steadier hands and remember things and hear better. But that's not the way it is. So I think it's this there's the real in the whole list, a comparison of what's actually happening and then this sort of ideal world. And I guess the other thing that stood out to me from the list is the balance between, say, gross, obvious physical things, death, illness, and then what Ani Pema so wonderfully sums up as not getting what I want and getting what I don't want. So those are those are my reactions. I can add to that, perhaps not entirely referring to the list, but I would add to the list all the workplace hassles. That is certainly dukkha. Going through a hugely turmoil-ridden period myself, and believe me, it's it's definitely dukkha, 10 hours a day. One thing I'm learning through the process is that dukkha demands of us skillful means of responding to the situations. And that's where... I, I guess my my pondering is about that, yes, we are in situations we may not like and we may not accept. And um, 
how we deal with them, how we are within them, how we respond to, to the situation, to the people who we perceive are the givers in some situations of what we perceive as dukkha. That's where I kind of stumble around and try to feel my way. I mean, it is somewhere where I would just welcome guidance. Um, when I when I now heard what you said, and I, I even heard some more subtle explanations, like not headache, but even if you're uncertain about things and just not happy with whatever situation, even this is dukkha I heard. And when I think about it, in a way you can say it is our inability to accept the reality as it is. And I think whatever or in any situation, when you can call it dukkha, there is something in the way. And when I learned that the I, the, the self, which we establish, which is not in accord with reality, I think it comes really back to this, because there must be some force which uh, is in opposition to what naturally is, be it some feeling which we don't accept as just some energy we can perceive at this moment. And I think this, this, this force which somehow makes the trouble is always this I, which comes in all these situations into, into play. I guess a, a completely wrong, or may more or less completely, <laughs> but anyway, a completely uh, a wrong understanding of how natural energy flow is or yeah, something like this. This is what came up now when you said all these things. And I mean, this is all theory. The question is still in the various situations how to deal with them, to yeah, be on the path to finally get out of this. <laughs> yes. Wow. I feel like you all are bringing up so much depth of the topic and i think that there's there is so much to dukkha i mean in many ways just like you were saying Zunita, samsara is a dark alley we don't know what to do right we're wandering around we want we want to be happy and yet we keep as druban kempo describes it we, we often our most heartfelt desire is to be happy to be perfectly content to have perfect well-being and yet all of our actions keep going in the opposite direction. Why is that? And like you were saying towards them, I think that's what the Buddha identified, right? Is that not, not lining up with the way things really are, right? So it's not only not recognizing the non-self of, of ourselves, of phenomena, but also having that mistaken idea of a self on top of the non-recognition trying to make me look good, trying to control our, our feelings, our energy, saying this is good, this isn't bad, when really in that expansiveness of holding paradox, of being able to sit with things the way they are and the way they appear, right? I feel like you, you all have named it so eloquently going back to what both Torsten and Sunita were saying, that question of 
what do we do, right? The Buddha famously summarized his, his teaching as do no wrongdoing whatsoever, practice virtue and glorious abundance, completely tame your own mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha, right? So that's what we have to do. And it's four simple lines. How do we do that, right? And that's what the rest of all of this proliferation of teaching is helping us to understand, to refine away. Yes, I was really struck as everyone spoke with a couple of things. First of all, the elegance of the Buddha's terminology, rebirth, aging, illness, death, obvious suffering, encountering what we don't want, being parted from those we hold dear, encountering what we dislike, shifting suffering, things that seem pleasurable, but the sands are kind of shifting right under our feet as they feel pleasurable and moving to something unpleasurable or vice versa. How simply elegant it is. So Sunita said, oh, workplace difficulties. That fits right in, encountering what we don't like. The elegance of the terms he uses that can really be plugged into whatever our experience is. That's the big thing that hit me is how immediately the Buddha is connecting with our experience. And he starts out with the things that are very obvious to us, things that we can immediately identify as painful, one of the meanings of dukkha, and then things that we don't necessarily immediately identify as painful. But if we spend a little time thinking about it and say, yeah, I'm not so crazy about having lost my youth or being in the process of losing it. And then he speaks about these five self-perpetuating skandhas, something so subtle that we never even think about, that without the Buddha would not be on our radar screen. And at the same time, he's not only just describing that and saying, yeah, you know, life sucks. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> but he's also speaking to what all of you are saying. Where is this coming from? The immediate thing that happens for us in our experience when we say, yeah, it's true, there are all those different levels of dukkha. Then there's the question of, well, where does it come from? Is, it some, is there something I can do about it? And what is that something that I can do? Right there, we have true suffering in the first truth, the true origin of suffering. Where does it come from in the second truth? True cessation of suffering. Can I put a stop to this? the third truth. And how do I do it? The true path, the eightfold path of noble beings. Right there in the four truths are the answers that naturally arise to our mind when we connect with this in our experience. Not only is it there, but it's there in precisely the order <laughs> that comes up to our mind. Magnificent, so elegant and so simple this very short discourse that right then and there addresses our experience as it's happening for us. So when we go through the whole sutra, we could have that experience happening of questions arising and the Buddha responding, questions arising and the Buddha responding in that way. And just as with the brief verse that Zopa just described, the wording of the response, I don't want to say answer per se, because I don't know that there is an answer in any of the Buddha's teachings, but the response he gives us seems very simple. An eightfold noble path is how you address with skillful means. 
the situations that we dislike, etc. At the same time, even though it can be worded fairly simply and elegantly, actually enacting that is quite complicated, or at least we make it complicated <laughs> through all of the turmoil that our mind brings. Ultimately, I think it is the simplicity that I've heard several of you mention here, insistence on things being as we want them to be. In other words, we perceive things to exist in a certain way, and we either want it to stay that way, or we want it to change to some other way. And so much comes out of that. And just as Torsten was saying, that idea of a self, a truly existent self, which the Buddha later identifies in more detail as the ultimate source of all of the difficulty, even the origin of suffering, which he describes as tanha, craving, derives from this ignorance that does not realize the true nature of things, particularly the self of the individual and phenomena. And then out of that, all kinds of difficulty arrives. The mind becomes tumultuous with all kinds of concepts and fabrications and then becomes conditioned to the way we cast projections onto experience. And that conditioning further strengthens the misperception and so forth, all the way around the 12 links of interdependent origination. I find this sutra just absolutely fascinating in its simplicity, its elegance, its knowledge of beings, immediate reactions, and the way that he starts to just touch into what turns out to be several decades of teaching after this first public discourse. I have a question if we have time. Please. I'm thinking about not to take this out of, you know, the the immediate sutra in question and and Buddha Shakyamuni, but I've always interested and and struck by the line by Tilopa about I don't know the exact translation or the exact words, but it's like, it's not by desire you are fettered, but by clinging or attachment. I think the phrase goes something like that. So I always think about that in relation to the, the concept of tanha and craving and thirst. So I'd be curious to hear the lamas speak a little bit about the interplay between the identification of tanha as this source of, of dukkha, and then this idea in that of clinging or attachment that's brought out in that um, line from Tilopa. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as I remember the verse, I think it's, it's you know, Tilopa instructing Naropa, and he says, it's not the objects that bind you, my son, it's your attachment to them. That does bring up this very interesting question, right? It's not anything out there, right? We don't have to solve the world. We don't have to solve, we don't have to make other beings behave a particular way, all of this, right? It's it's our attachment. It's our, like Torsten was was referring to, it's, it's trying to force that energy into the way that this very limited idea of things being truly existent the way they appear to us to be as the reality, right? And of trying to force the world and other beings and even ourself, our energy, our, our emotions, all of these things to conform to this very small limited idea that the, the self brings forward. In terms of craving, 
often when we hear craving, we, we think of it as, oh, I really want something, right? But craving also encompasses our aversion, right? I really don't like that. I'm craving to be separate from it, right? So craving isn't just like the desirous side, it's also the averse side. Right. And part of the beauty of the teachings and the way that they're structured and the, the path is that there's like this progression, right? So craving, when we look at some of the descriptions of how we take rebirth, right? When we're in the bardo after we've died, right? Part of it is craving. Craving is like the linchpin, which drives us, which really nails home and makes us take up the next rebirth. So there's so many levels of addressing craving in the sense of just being able to have a little bit of space, even if it's just the recognition of like, wow, I really want that samosa or that chocolate or whatever it is. And even just having that space of recognizing and not immediately following, right? We can train in simple ways. But of course, the only way to fully uproot that is to get to the ignorance that underlies it. That's the beauty of the spectrum of the, the Buddha's path and the different vehicles that he employs to help us recognize it, is that there's these graduated levels where we can dig deeper and deeper into examining our own immediate experience of craving. It's not like we have to wait until we're dead and we're in the bardo and then be like, okay, now I really need to like cut off that craving. No, if, if we do that, then it's going to be too late because it's, we'll already have been so habituated to it. Whereas if, if we start to recognize more and work with this more, then there is that sense of being able to train in it. And all of that gives us conducive circumstances for working on the fundamental ignorance, that fundamental belief uh, in a self that keeps tripping us up. And of course, there's there's so much more to, to say about what you uh, brought up, Rob. But the other thing that to me feels really valuable uh, in that, at least in this moment, is also that recognition that sometimes we can feel so restricted when it comes to like cutting off craving or, oh, I have to limit myself, all of these different things. And my experience when I'm in a little bit more of a spacious mindset is just how beautiful it is to recognize like, yeah, there's all this beauty, there's all this magnificence of the world and of beings and all of that. And it's not that we're denying ourselves that as much as it is that we're recognizing that those kleshas that disturb the mind that actually affect our ability to be with that beauty, that magnificence, uh, because we limit it and we say mine, or I don't want it, not mine, right? Or we just don't care, right? And so there's something really profound and striking about that sense of it's not the things that bind you, my son, it's your attachment, right? If I recall correctly, the word in, in the Tibetan translation of that is nangwa, which is nangwa is usually translated as an appearance or an experience. That quote is incredibly profound because you can go to all manner of depth in understanding just what that word nangwa means. 
something that appears to us, this image on a screen or the screen itself or the computer, the room it's in, other individuals, objects, as Zopa was just saying, is one of those things. But so is desire. Desire is an experience that we have. It may not appear in a, in a tangible form. Uh, there is something tangible usually associated with the desire, but the desire itself is not typically something we experience tangibly. And yet it's an experience. Contentment is an experience. Suffering is an experience. Back to these four truths. Right there, the Buddha is saying there are all these experiences in life. In all of these experiences, there is a thread of dukkha, basically something not quite right, either in your face not quite right because it hurts, or subtly not quite right because you want it to stay and it's slipping through your fingers, or invisibly not quite right, that powerlessness of having the ability to define what happens to us. We stay young. We do not die. We are always with the people we love. We have no power for that. What the Buddha is saying and what Tolopa describes here so succinctly is whatever our experience is, that's not the issue. The issue is that we attach to those experiences, as Zopa just said, in any number of ways. Attachment doesn't necessarily mean we, we like it. We may be attached to being free of it or whatever it may be. And it's that craving for things to exist a certain way or to not exist a certain way that is our immediate source of uh, discomfort. And then this, the ultimate source, the root of even that craving is that ignorance that takes things to exist truly. Rob, I, I really love that you brought this up because one of the things that happens in the Mahayana and Vajrayana teachings is that there's this very strong reliance on commentaries and scriptural quotations from masters other than the Buddha. And that can be criticized a lot. The reality is that the, the Buddha's output is enormous. He was prolific as a teacher, and he was also very embedded in circumstances. So he tended to teach because of questions or situations that arose. So the commentaries and teachings of the later masters are often used to condense and bring all those pieces together. And think, Rob, that this quote that you just brought us from Tilopa is a very good example of that. Experiences that bind you, my son, it's your attachment to them. Cut through attachment, Naropa. Beautiful. Thank you all so much. Please just take a moment again to share the merit of any goodness that's come from our discussion right now, our contemplation together, and share it with all beings so that all beings may benefit, may know how to act skillfully in accord with the true nature, the innate Buddhahood that is the nature of their minds. Join us on the full moon for our next full episode. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to like, follow, share, and review Prajna Sparks. It means a lot to us. If you have any questions, contact us via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks.
Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit.